0: Hello, and welcome back to the While We're Waiting, Hope After Child Loss podcast. I'm Jill Sullivan, your host and one of the co-founders of the While We're Waiting ministry. This is a podcast of stories, stories of devastating loss and grief and heartbreak and struggle, and stories of hope and healing and faith and, yes, even joy. Underlying every conversation is the hope we have in Jesus Christ, which makes it possible to not just survive the loss of a child, but to live well while we're waiting to see them again in heaven one day. You can learn more about our ministry and the free bereaved parent retreats we host by visiting our website at www.whilewe'rewaiting.org. Welcome to episode number 128. I'm excited today to introduce you to my friends, Hal and Elizabeth Barge. The barges are an important part of the While We're Waiting ministry, as facilitators of our retreat specifically for parents who have been touched by suicide. They join me today to share the story of their remarkable son, John, a bright young man who loved music, hiking, travel, and was an Eagle Scout. In his late teen years, things began to change, and John began a nine-year battle with mental illness. On Memorial Day of 2020, John took his own life, and the barge's journey with grief began. They have a lot of wisdom to share, and I believe you'll be encouraged by our conversation. Hi, Helen and Elizabeth. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jill. Thank you for having us. Hi, Jill. Hi. Thank you so much for being willing to, to join me today. Um, I've been looking forward to having y'all on. So let's get started by just giving you guys an opportunity to tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves. Tell us where you're from and what life is like for you there.
1: Okay, sure. We currently live in Norfolk, Virginia, and we have been here for a number of years now. We're both in our early 60s, and we've been married 39 years next month. Um, We have two children, three now, Emily and her husband, Joe, and John was four years younger than Emily when he died at age 27. We're a Navy family. Hal served 28 years in the submarine force, and so we moved quite frequently. We've lived all over the US and we've traveled all over the world. I'm a functional medicine dietitian, and I had a private practice. I would say I'm a real minimalist, also. That's just a peculiarity about me.
2: Sure.
1: Um, we've both been involved in Bible Study Fellowship International for like 25 years. A long time. It was our steady Eddie as we moved all over the country.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, Since leaving the Navy about 12 years ago, I've been in the private sector and I I now work at a privately held manufacturing company. At home, one thing Elizabeth didn't mention is we've always had cats. And recently, a few years ago, Elizabeth added a chocolate lab to that mix. So we have some friends at home.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Chocolate Lab. That's one of my favorite kind of dogs. So they just have such great personalities, So friendly. Indeed. Yes. All right. Well, you mentioned your son, John, and that's who we're here to talk about today. So help us get to know him a little bit.
3: So John from an early age was a, a super smart kid. He used to do math for fun, for example. Uh-huh. He was a natural drummer. He was quite the baseball enthusiast from about age six into, into just about his teen years, into his teen years, I guess, had a paper route, loved skateboarding. He was very into the Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts ended up as an Eagle Scout, but what he really loved was camping and backpacking. And uh, he was always super funny, had a great sense of humor.
0: Yeah. Um, At some point, You know, you said he was funny, he was involved, he was doing all of these things, but at some point things began to change with him. How about you pick up the story from there?
3: Sure. Um, After high school, John did a gap year. This is about 2011. And he went to Germany to live with an exchange student who had lived with us in our house for a year. And so John did a reciprocal exchange, kind of a great opportunity. But in April of that school year, I got a phone call from him in Germany that he had checked himself into a psychiatric hospital, which was really a bolt out of the blue. We weren't expecting that. Yeah. Um, I traveled over there and brought him home. He was in a bad mental state. He had a lot of strange uh, ideas about his own body. He was keeping vampire hours. He, He had did strange things like shaved his head. And it turns out he had started using drugs while he was over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of one of our unanswered questions still at this point. We're really not certain what all was involved in that. Um, but we didn't know about it until it resulted in this hospital visit. Well, this, So this experience kicked off what turned into be nine years of doctors and struggle with mental illness, And John was essentially 18 or older at the time. So he was legally an adult. He was not cooperative. He would swing from an attitude of saying he damaged his brain and I'm mentally ill to the other extreme where he'd say that advice I got from a doctor last week. I'm dropping that because now I think he's a nut. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's yeah, it was very much like a roller coaster up and down. This continued through college, you know, so all through this time, John was in college at Virginia Tech. He was taking a very difficult major, but he's uh, chemistry. He struggled through that, but he, he did graduate, but we did have really contentious relationships during this whole period of time. After he graduated, he went into the workforce. He went, He worked at the same company I was at for a while, but got hired by somebody else besides me, taught himself some difficult computer programming, got himself promoted, was performing so well, they sent him overseas to the Netherlands to, to help out a unit over there that was struggling and, and did business in German because he had learned German. Wow. So on one level, he was being very successful, but on another level, his paranoia started to emerge. And it was hard to, for us to spot as that we can call it that now, but at the time, it just like looked like unreasonable things he would believe, such as they're going to blame me for how this project is going badly. This doctor I have is hiding some deadly disease news from me. You know, just sort of strange things. This started to culminate in early 2019. John quit his job to hike the Appalachian Trail alone from Georgia to Maine. He had done half of it a few years earlier, so he, he knew what he was getting into. But in retrospect, he was running away from some mental illness problems and, and actually hoping to find some healing in that. He made it about 1,200 miles, but had to stop in July when he contracted Lyme disease, and that really Exhausted him. So he came off the trail and came back to live with us. In October of that year, this culminated in a pretty serious event when he had a psychotic break and became fully in the grip of this paranoid delusion that he was being tracked and pursued by some secret group. So, I mean, this is a, a form of uh, schizophrenia we know now. Yeah. Um, it, uh, this The way I'm telling it makes it sound like it was clear from the beginning what it was, but this developed over a really long period of time. Yeah, He left home abruptly. He was living with us at the time. Um, he ended up in police custody and subsequently got into a psychiatric hospital, which at the, at the time gave us some relief because we thought he would get some attention sure. and help. That's yeah. what we were expecting. It didn't turn out that way for him. It kind of broke him. And he, we visited him several times. El, Elizabeth drove 400 miles each way weekly to see him because this hospital was on the other side mm-hmm. of the state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we realized that he was slowly wasting away in this place that he called jail for crazy people.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So we, um, petitioned the judge to release him to our custody which is ultimately how it turned out and we did pursue more doctors and more treatment he was now much more agreeable to this because he had seen what the alternative was and he was grateful to us to for allowing him to live with us but he still wasn't convinced that there was really anything wrong with him and that he that his delusion was not correct so he allowed us to go through this exercise of mental illness treatment, but he said, it's not going to keep people from killing him.
2: Mm.
3: So so he was deeply in the grip of this delusion. Yeah. Now it's early 2020 and he's, you know, the whole issue with COVID and lockdowns comes around. So eventually all the services that he was getting uh, got shut down. So he spent more and more time, by himself, at home, a smaller and smaller circle of trust. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: He was actually quite good company to be around at this point. Some of the good news here is that our relationships healed a lot, and he never got to a point where he distrusted us, although Mm -hmm. he eventually did come to distrust most other people. The only places he would go outside the house were church and with us, and Bible study fellowship with me, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: He didn't go anywhere alone.
1: He would go to uh, a neighbor's house. He went to one neighbor's house for dinner.
3: That's true. Mm-hmm. Yep. There was a, a small circle of people that he trusted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about his illness a lot with him, partly to try to understand it. Um, honestly, partly to try to talk him out of it, which didn't work. People have asked us, what is what is it like to live with a person that's irrational like that? And my answer is that he was not irrational. He was completely rational, but he had started from this false premise that he wouldn't let go of, mm. that his delusion was true. Yeah. And everything he did was based on that. Interestingly, he also, at this in this phase, he came back to his faith. He read his Bible a lot. He said he felt like God was calling him to share the gospel, even though he didn't know how he would do that or what it would look like. But along with all this, we can now see that he was suffering quite a bit of mental decline, just mm-hmm. in terms of ability. You know, As I said earlier, he, was a, he used to be a, an artist, a musician, a, a reader, a math whiz, yeah, an investor, and you know, he had lost all that. Not because he was not only because he was afraid to do things, but also he said, My brain just doesn't work like it used to, Mm. and which is really sad. Yeah,
1: yeah, he was debilitating, and we could see it.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, just listening, I'm just thinking how heartbreaking as a parent to watch that decline Mm -hmm. and be helpless to stop it.
3: When I look back on that, on that period of John's life, what strikes me is that he was legitimately terrified. He didn't understand why we couldn't see what he could see.
2: Yeah.
3: And he was truly terrified, which is exhausting in and of itself. And he was suffering these mental declines. And so he was, he was suffering pretty severely.
2: Yeah.
3: So this, this culminated on Memorial Day 2020 which is the day he died. We had spent that weekend at home. It was a Monday, of course, on Memorial Day. Elizabeth and I went out uh, to take the dog for a walk downtown. We were gone about an hour and a half. When we got back, it was probably about 10.30. Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: John, we expected him to be up. He hadn't gotten up yet and didn't answer up. And, you know, I found him upstairs in the bathroom. Where he had died. He did not leave a note, but he did. He had a very messy desk, but he neatly laid out his arrest warrant, his hospital discharge paperwork, and his Bible open to the end of Romans chapter eight, which is what he'd been reading. And that's what was laid out on his desk. Yeah. Um, I, I spoke at his funeral that week. It was late May. it was 2020. It was the first service that our church had had in months. Yeah.: yeah. And at that time, I, I told John's story sort of like I've told it now, um, talking openly about his mental illness. I, I wanted people to understand the, what he had been suffering with. And then uh, our journey after that started there. So yeah, that's probably a good summary.
0: Yeah, just listening to you share that, I I just almost felt like I was living it along with you for those years. Um, And uh, just the weight of that, that's a heavy, heavy story. Mm -hmm. When we met you at our while we're waiting weekend for Parents Touched by Suicide, Elizabeth, you shared with us a haiku that you wrote after John's death. Would you mind sharing that with us and then talk a little bit about what moved you to write it?
1: Yes. First, I'll just tell you what the haiku was. We'll start yes. there. Mm-hmm. It was The death of my son is like an amputation. He's always not there. And that was the best illustration that I could come up with, with how, you know, when people would ask how I'm doing, I knew that wound would heal over, like if I had lost a limb. But my my in my new life, John is always not there. So to kind of add on to what Hal was saying, um, when John had that psychotic break in October, I come from a fairly large family and it was exhausting to have the phone call, how's John doing, how's John doing? Mm-hmm. So I opened up a caring bridge blog and it was private, it's by invitation, but I did have quite a number of people who followed it. And I started adding the um, haikus within that. It was just a way to express the daily experiences with John. And it came so easily. I knew that it really came from God. And if I can, I'll share a few of the. Entries that yes. um, summarize a perspective. Sometimes the perspective is from John, and sometimes it's from me. But um, these are all glimpses of what we struggled with during his mental descent. Yeah, you know, as that paranoia gripped him, gripped him the last eight months of his life.
0: Yes, yes. Please share them.
1: Okay. So one is um, intimidation. They are out there, just waiting, waiting to kidnap. See proof of danger out my window danger lurks why can't you see it mm. you see a man there plotting to kidnap and murder we see a neighbor mm. yeah and as the disease kept going i wrote this one um god called you to life this is not life you're living god will restore soon And they'll never forget. They'll wait until the right time. I'll never be safe. And then the night he died, I wrote, um, John, my precious son, your suffering is over. Ours is beginning.
0: Yes. That's the one I remember you sharing at the retreat. And it just, it really struck me that um, for John. His suffering was over. He had such a long battle. But yours was just beginning and yes. and will continue at some at some degree until the day you join him in heaven. And I I I guess too the reason that one spoke to me is because with Hannah dying of cancer, obviously a different, different type of journey. But when her suffering ended, ours began. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well. Thank you for sharing those. Just even sharing those does give me a, just a little glimpse of what was going on in John's mind. Yeah. So thank you for sharing those.
1: Yes. So, um, if I could add anything, you know, one other thing is that I often share those. I mean, I was, I was very transparent in those Caring Bridge blog posts. Yeah. And there were a lot of people who were riding that roller coaster with us and feeling that helplessness and rejoicing with our small successes. And I had more than one comment that others really appreciated the insights I gave to them about what it's like living with schizophrenia and then the kind of grief that you suffer after, um, a suicide.
0: Yes. Yeah. I think that caring bridge had to have been a very, very valuable tool, both for yourself, as you processed through mm-hmm. all of these things that were going on and for others, just educating people about the reality of mental illness and what it is like to walk that journey with someone you love. So thank you for that.
2: You're welcome.
0: Do you guys feel that there are issues that a parent who loses a child to suicide has to deal with that complicate the grief journey? And if so, how have you dealt with those issues?
3: I think there absolutely are complications. You know, as Elizabeth was talking, I was I was thinking about anger, and that that is not one that I have ever had to deal with, and and perhaps not Elizabeth, but I know some people do. But guilt. And regret and fear, for sure. Yeah. I I can remember, you know, as I said, I found John, and I, I can remember in vivid detail what was going through my mind. And I would say, in the first three seconds, all those emotions went through my mind. Um, yeah, guilt about what you you did, guilt about what you didn't do, fear about the future, regret about the outcome. I remember the, the, the most clear thought that came to my mind is here is something that can't be undone.
2: Mm, yeah.
3: And, and I know others f- fear the scorn and judgment from other people. That's never really been an issue for us. But, but the regret and the guilt, certainly. How we've dealt with that, um, my experience tells me that you have to face these things head on and, and think through them. And that takes time.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, you, there's no way to avoid the ideas of like, if only this or if only that. I should have done this. I should have done that. So I would say letting those come, but not latching on to them and moving mm-hmm. on. I, counseling definitely helped. We Elizabeth and I were both in counseling weekly for a year starting immediately afterwards sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. with the same counselor, but independently, occasionally together, but mostly on our own. And I would say for me, you know, you have to be realistic about the, these ideas that come through your head. You're like, I'll give you one example. You know, I said that John had gotten into drugs during his gap year. And, you know, one idea that comes to your mind is, well, if only he hadn't been there, Mm -hmm. but of course, you can get drugs anywhere, so right, right. You know, there's that. Mm-hmm. Another key point here, I think, for us is you have to be kind to each other and be merciful, no matter how an individual parent is feeling. Their spouse has just suffered also the most grievous wound you can suffer. Yes. So piling onto that is not going to help. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty safe to say that we could have found a way to crush each other and wreck our marriage. But we chose not to because yes. that wouldn't help John. It wouldn't help us. It wouldn't help Emily. And it would just be a victory for the enemy.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So some of this involves choosing.
0: Mm,
3: definitely.
2: Yes. And so
1: I, I know that from listening to other people's stories at the retreats, that there is a fair amount of shame.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I rejected it right from the get-go. I never felt shame. By God's grace, I just never suffered from that. But I did have to struggle quite a lot and come to peace with, there would just be unanswered questions. Yes. And I would have to live with them. I would have to coexist with them in order to go on. It was helpful to learn I, I really, I, I kind of battled the therapist for months about this one statement that she said, which is there's no one reason and there's no one person that would cause a suicide. And I kept coming back at her.
0: I was his mother. <laughs>
1: yeah. I should have been able to do
0: something. Sure, sure, yeah.
1: And it was probably five months later I finally believed her. Yes. There's no one reason, and there's no one person that's responsible for a child's suicide. Hal mentioned the guilt. There's also a fair amount of blame. You'll be, you know, you'll feel it, even if you're not looking for it. Those questions, the what-ifs, you can sometimes assign blame. And forgiveness has to come.
2: Mm.
1: For me. The blame was really towards the psychiatric community with all of the doctors, all of the money, all of the medications, everything that we had tried over nine years. And really nobody could help. And even one psychiatrist told us, told John, we haven't changed in 150 years. You're going to have to talk yourself out of this.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. So a lot of forgiveness was necessary you know, in order to reclaim my own life.
0: Yeah, I, I can see where there would be a lot of forgiveness that would be needed on, on many different levels. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's interesting to me. We'll talk a little bit more about that probably a little bit later. So is there a particular scripture or scriptures that have been helpful to you on your grief journey?
3: Well, we thought of a couple Uh, I'll mention the first one. It's Romans 8, verses 38 to 39. You might remember John's Bible was open to this, and we also chose it for his headstone. And I think it applies here. It says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
1: And the, the other one that really has become near and dear is one that we use to help other people with once, you know, once we had been revealed, once it had been revealed to us and we thought about it. And it's what Hal and I call the suicide verse, which is Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And we often think about the survivors applying that verse, but really when you think about the desperation that a person is feeling when they get to the point that they're returning their life back to God, it is a brokenhearted situation.
0: Absolutely.
1: And God's, promises because his word is true that he saves those who are crushed in spirit.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, I love thinking about that scripture as applied to the person. Like you said, we usually think about that for ourselves as the ones that are left behind.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Mm, I love that. You guys are giving me a lot to think about today. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right. So what have you learned about God and about his character through this experience?
3: I have found that all really hard questions find their answers in what you might call God's attributes. Mm, Yes. For example, especially in the case of suicide, one might ask, where was God? And I think we just talked about that with Psalm 34, 18, God was right there. Absolutely. Well, so did he know what was going to happen? Well, yes, he did because he's omniscient. Could he have intervened? He's all-powerful, so he could have. Why didn't he? Well, we don't know, but we know that God's good. He's wise. And we also know that he's eternal. And so he has a different perspective and a longer horizon than than we do yes and um you know I, jill i mentioned before we started that i had just seen something on the one of the, your facebook pages where somebody's struggling with this and a fellow member answered that she had cried out to god why didn't you save my child And he whispered back to her i did yeah so yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i i think uh, to, again, to summarize, focusing on God's attributes will provide a lot of grounding in this, in this hard topic. Mm-hmm.
1: And even though my loss is great, that doesn't mean that God is not still good. And by his grace, he revealed things to me when I could process it and when I could understand it. And so one um one morning, I have another friend whose son died about 10 years before ours did, and she had told me this method, and I thought, I'm gonna do it. So it was dark, it's early in the morning, I got my Bible, I sat down and I asked, okay, God, what do you have for me today? And, you know, I thought, I'm gonna open the Psalms, and I opened almost blindly, and there I saw it. It was God giving me insight into how John was feeling in the days and probably the weeks prior to his death. And it was Psalm 142, 6 and 7. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. And it was something that never would have actually meant anything to me before. But that morning, it was God whispering to me, this is what John felt like. Yes. And it didn't surprise me. And I provided for it.
2: And I rescued him.
0: Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. So as we're recording this episode, it's been about two and a half years, I believe, since John went to heaven. But if you can think back to those very early days of your grief, what advice would you give to a newly bereaved parent, maybe particularly someone who has lost their child to suicide?
3: I'd say, first of all, be kind and merciful, both to yourself and to your family members. And to go at the speed that you need to, however fast or slow that is, but keep moving towards life. Mm. I would say grieve unashamedly. Elizabeth said we were pretty transparent and unashamed about the fact that we were in grief. Get into God's Word, as we've mentioned already. If you have a good Bible study, that's good. Or Bible study fellowship or some way to get into God's Word. And I would encourage someone in this position to feel the pain, not to numb the pain. Yeah. The best way to get through grief is to experience the grief mm-hmm. and don't isolate yourself. Mm-mm. Get Christian counseling. Yeah. As Elizabeth said, don't give in to shame and anger. There's, there's this phrase that's come to mind since thinking about this question about you, know, you, you you hear a child psychiatrist talking about parallel play. Well, I think mm, Elizabeth yes. and I have engaged in a lot of parallel grief.
2: Uh-huh.
3: Our counselor said that um, marriages don't have trouble after the loss of a child because of the loss of the child. They have trouble because the surviving parents judge each other on how they're grieving mm. or not grieving
2: mm-hmm. Actually,
1: that's David Kessler
3: Oh okay, that's right. David Kessler. yeah.
1: Kessler David Kessler. He mentioned that on a podcast. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: So I would just add on that if you can't read God's word, because I was really dead, I mean, I was Mm -hmm. really dead, listen to God's word and maybe start with the Gospel of John, um, just because that reveals Jesus so beautifully.
2: Yes.
1: Um, And know that you will grieve differently from your spouse. And here's an example people were so kind to us, and the outpouring of love and the material support, all kinds of things. Hal actually depleted the supply of John's um, stationery with his name on it by writing thank you notes. So every night Hal's writing thank you notes because that's how he's coping. Yeah, I couldn't even read the cards that were coming in.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Uh-huh. They came in by the fistful. And while I appreciated it, it was like, I can't read
0: these. Right. I understand that. Yeah.
1: So it was totally different. And then one thing, my sister-in-law thought of this, and this was really sweet. She sent me this paint-by-numbers kit, and she said, "I got one for myself. We're going to work on it together, and every few days we'll call and we'll talk each other to each other about the progress on this little paint-by-numbers thing." So I cannot believe how, while I was dead, just painting kind of mindlessly for a few hours every day, while I was maybe listening to a book or something listening to some music I began to feel alive again and it was a huge I mean I felt like I did something with my day too yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and well what? and you knew it kind of kept you accountable too because you knew she was going to be checking with you to make sure you were painting and, and you know and it gave her an excuse to to reach out to you every few days I think that's a brilliant idea yeah Yeah. So that was great. Yeah. Wow. I love that. And I love what you said, Hal, about the parallel play, parallel grief, you know, that, that we grieve beside each other sometimes, but maybe not together like we should.
2: Right.
0: And I love the example, Elizabeth, that you gave of Hal doing all of the thank you notes and you being like, I can't even read them. But, and I think a lot of couples are that way, but what we have to do is give grace to each other and say, right. thank goodness he can do that because I can't do that right now and be grateful <laughs> rather than say, how can you do that? You know, right. um, just be right. grateful that, that one of you can.
3: And, and I'm glad you used the word grateful because I think finding your gratitude again mm-hmm. is a good foothold to getting back towards life Yeah. because there's, Even in our situation, there was much to be grateful for.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are things to be grateful for. I think in all situations, we just have to look hard and we have to be intentional about that and be open to it, be open uh, to the idea of having gratitude. Um, And that doesn't come right away, I don't think,
3: but over time
0: it does. No, but it
3: is about looking for it because, you know, I was grateful that John, was able and chose to live with us.
2: Yeah. Right.
3: Some, some people's situations end up in a much more uncertain, unknown or horrifying way. And right. um, I'm right. grateful that it didn't.
1: Hugely grateful. We, uh, when we thought of all of the things that could have gone wrong um, to know that John, you know, played Scrabble with us on Sundays, ate dinner with us every night, had a warm bed, clean clothes, you know, and he did what he could within the family, including cleaning the dishes and that kind of thing Uh that gave us a lot of satisfaction and a huge amount of gratitude. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That is a gift. That is a gift for sure. This concludes the first half of my conversation with Hal and Elizabeth Barge. I hope you'll come back next week as we explore issues related to mental illness and suicide and how the barges have learned to coexist with unanswered questions. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to sharing the rest of our chat with you next Wednesday.